Again, I'd like to say good morning to everybody. It's good to see you today. And uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Samson today from the book of Judges, which is, actually covers four chapters, Judges 13 to 16. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to page 213, uh, that would be great. Um, I'm going to be reading Scripture as I preach the message rather than reading the Scripture all at once. Uh, at the beginning of the message, and I think uh, if it's all right, I'd just like to make comment that um, I just like to make comment that you know one of the reasons I like to prepare my sermons in a full text manuscript and then send them out on Saturday nights is so that you have the benefit of them uh, in writing on Sunday morning. A lot of people learn uh, visually, but also when I send out those sermons on Saturday evening, I often add notes in my cover email that talk about the text, its significance, and so forth that I don't go into in the sermon. So um, it's not just sort of a preview. It's a little bit more than that in terms of preparation for the message. And all of that is to say that I often will preach sermons in sort of an unconventional way. I realize that. I expect a lot of the congregation in terms of what you're willing to listen to, what you're willing to consider. And I think it's part of growing and maturing in Christ as a congregation. Um, so um, I hope that you will um, take that as sort of a call to raise the bar in, uh, in, in listening and hearing. I constantly feel the call of God in my own heart to raise the bar in my preaching and in my teaching. So as a congregation, we join together in this commitment, and it will really help us all in our worship and in our spiritual growth uh, together. I'm going to uh, ask you if you join with me in prayer. Father, as we, uh, as we look at this large section of Scripture uh, now, I would ask you that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer, exactly as the psalmist said. Uh, in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Uh, I want to begin by reading from the beginning of Judges chapter 13, the first uh, the first. Uh, six verses or so. The text and the story of Samson begins this way. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now this is the beginning of the story. And you notice in what I read that there was no crying out on Israel's part for help. Unlike the previous judges we've looked at, you know, there was apostasy, there was God's judgment, then Israel cried out for relief, and then God raised up a judge. In this case, there's no crying out for help. There's no crying out for relief at all, because there is no conflict. Israel has thrown in the towel with her enemies. She has become no different from the world around her. She is immersed in pagan practice, pagan thought. She's been completely co-opted by the Philistine culture, the Philistine economy. She has been swept into a subservience that has taken her away from God. So there's no crying out because life is pretty good. Then we continue. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. 
but you shall conceive and bear a son. And therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin, listen to this, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, and the story continues to unfold. Now, I mention this because many of you are familiar with the end of the story of Samson. Many of you are familiar with how mighty Samson was seduced by the Philistine Delilah to divulge the source of his great strength. And uh, he did that by saying that it was in his long hair. And so his head was shaved. He lost his strength. The Philistines bound him. The Philistines blinded him. The Philistines enslaved him. They made a a spectacle of him. They tormented him in the temple to their god, who was named Dagon, until God gave Samson back strength to tear the temple down and to destroy them all, including Samson himself. How different is the beginning of his life story than the end, with an entire chapter devoted to his nativity. It is a holy nativity story that at least reminds us of the story of John the Baptist in the New Testament, reminds us a lot also of the story of the birth of Samuel. An angel announces that a barren couple will conceive and bear a son whom God is calling to holy service. It's amazing. God's calling Samson to be a Nazarite from the womb, even before he's conceived. Now, to learn about Nazarites, you have to turn back to Numbers chapter 6. A man or a woman could take a Nazarite vow, and that Nazarite vow was a pledge to separate oneself unto the Lord, to separate oneself from evil and unto God. This was not a, an office in Israel. This was, a, this was a commitment of life to be a fully devoted follower, outspoken uh, of the Lord God. And when one took a Nazarite vow, they didn't have to, but when one took a Nazarite vow, there were three outward signs of this inward spiritual commitment of heart and life. Three outward signs of that. The first is the Nazarite, for the length of their vow, could not cut their hair. They could not even eat a grape, let alone drink wine or vinegar. They had nothing to do with it. And they could not have any contact with the dead, not even accidental contact with the dead. Number six teaches that if you're next to someone and you're a Nazarite and they die and they fall on you, then there's a whole cleansing procedure you had to go through. This was amazing. But all of this was to underscore outwardly this inward consecration and how seriously the individual took their devotion to the Lord God. And the Lord said to Manoah's wife, Mrs. Manoah, uh, he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb, so you can't even drink anything of the vine. You can't even touch anything that's unclean or dead or eat it. So the angel of the Lord declares this to uh, to the the couple, so to speak, and the mission. And he shall begin, Samson shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now you read that, and it all sounds so great. Great. 
Yet from this point forward, it is immediately very clear that Samson is no John the Baptist. He's no Samuel, the next and final judge, who is also a Nazarite and a prophet and a godly man. No, 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 no. Very first escapade of his life is that he decides to marry a Philistine woman. The issue there was not ethnic impurity. It was spiritual impurity. She was a pagan. So beginning in chapter 14, this is how the escapade begins in the opening verses. Samson went down to Timnah, which was a fortified Philistine city. It was a stronghold. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And for 20 years, until he was bound and blinded, Samson was just as self-indulgent, just as lustful, just as impulsive as this early account of his adult life indicates. He never rallied Israel to fight against the Philistines, the enemy. He never led anyone. All the accounts of Samson's life are personal escapades, which is very, very different from Deborah and, and Brock, or very, very different from Gideon and these other judges who came earlier. He does absolutely nothing to separate himself unto God from what's evil, let alone what's ceremonially unclean. I mean, on his way to the wedding, to this uh, Philistine girl, he eats honey from the carcass, from the dead body of a lion that he killed earlier. And then as part of the celebration, he hosts a multi-day booze party for 30 of his new Philistine buddies. He loses a bet with them in the, in the course of this, of this party so that he owes each one a new set of clothes. So he goes out and he kills 30 Philistines. Goes and kills 30 people he never met before so that he can give the 30 garments to his new buddies. Samson, his mother, his father are, are heartbroken over their son. Just as we would be surprised and are surprised at what unfolded here, given his nativity story. There's something that his mother and father did not know. Just as there's something that you and I do not know as you approach the story. And it's in Judges 14, verse 4. It explains. He's a heartbroken mother and father. Can't you find a good Jewish girl? And this is the answer. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, that's the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now think with me for that, about that for a minute. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are absolutely not our thoughts. And here, the author of Judges lets us in on what lay behind Samson's entire life. God was using him to stir up hostility between 
Israel and the Philistines to stir up a hostility that was not there but that should be there. They were to drive the Philistines out to stir up a hostility between the Israel and the Philistines in order to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Remember that quote from the angel? That's exactly what's taking place. But of course, when you look at the circumstances, they're so chaotic, they're so crazy. How would this ever, they would never have conceived that this was what was occurring. And as the reader of the text, unless we read it carefully, we would not see that either. But it's a key verse in the story of Samson. And so throughout all of the twists and the weird turns in this story, you see it seems so chaotic, and yet there is a dynamic in this story that is repeated six times. Though Samson squanders his calling again and again, God nonetheless uses him for his holy purpose six times to destroy Philistines. And as an FYI here, the Philistines, as a people, were called, were one of a group of what were called the Sea Peoples. They were a fierce uh, nation of seafaring warriors, probably from Crete and uh, Greece, the Aegean area of the Mediterranean. They're like Vikings. And they landed in the coastal areas of Canaan after having failed at an attempted invasion of Egypt. They were very strong people. They were a warlike people. And later, after being in the coastlands of, of Canaan, the coastal plain, they began to move into the hill country. Their military might was absolutely second to none. And it took 200 years to defeat them. Those were the Philistines. Now, when I speak of Samson squandering his calling... What it centered on was his lust for Philistine women, for pagan women. Three in particular. There's the Philistine woman that he married, chapter 14. We read the beginning of that. There was a prostitute in Gaza we won't look at. And then, of course, there was the infamous Delilah. So what you see here, and it's very important, is that just as Israel was, to use the quote, this phrase of scripture, just as Israel was whoring after other gods, Samson was whoring after pagan women. And yet again and again, he was delivered, Samson was delivered by the strength that came from God, and he destroys the Philistines. And I say just like Israel, that's extremely important. Samson in his life is mirroring Israel. He's mirroring Israel. You know, the end of the book of Judges, the famous verse, in those days every man did what was right in his own eyes. What did Samson say about that Philistine woman and marrying her? It is right in my eyes. He is a complete mirror of Israel. And yet you see this, this, this purpose of God taking place and going on inexorably through this chaos and this evil and that there's this deliverance for the sake of a coming salvation to Israel. And why is that? 
And it dawned on me last night in Romans, the Apostle Paul, thinking back to the history of Israel, made the comment, in spite of all the sin, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God has made a covenant promise to Abraham. He's going to keep that promise no matter what. Absolutely no matter what. Well, the most celebrated example, of course, from Samson's life of his victory uh, over uh, the Philistines comes after the Philistines attack a town in the tribe of Judah. Well, now Samson's from the tribe of Dan, but they attack a town in Judah, and the tribe of Judah asks the Philistines, why in the world are you doing this? And they're saying, it's in retaliation for everything that Samson has done to us. So, what does the tribe of Judah do? They send out 3,000 troops to arrest Samson. <laughs> They're countrymen. And they say to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Israel is so fallen and so corrupt at this point that Judah regards Samson as their, as their enemy. This is not the courageous, faithful Judah of old that would take it to the Canaanites, the Moabites. The no, 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 no. This is a very different Judah. This is, this is an emascul spiritually emasculated people who are angry at their countrymen because their countrymen are driving out the enemy. So the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. And he breaks the ropes that bind him. He finds the fresh jawbone of an ass. I've always wanted to say that from the pulpit. And he uses it to slay a thousand Philistines. And so the place is named Ramoth-Lehi, which is Jawbone Hill, in honor or in memory of what happened. But this is not the end of Samson's story at all. His downward spiral continues with a prostitute in Gaza and finally hits rock bottom with Delilah. The Bible says that the lords of the Philistines came to her. Well, how many of them were there? Well, we know that there were five capital cities of Philistia. There wasn't one capital, there were five. So the lords of the Philistines included at least those five, but perhaps noblemen as well. And they say to Delilah, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him and humble him and we will each, each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of silver. You get to multiply 1,100 pieces by all those lords of the Philistines. That's a, that's a lot of ching-ching. So she takes them up on the offer and Delilah begins to plead with Samson and to tell her, uh, to tell her the source of his strength and how he might be bound and subdued. I mean, you know, she's very blatant about this. This is in chapter 16, beginning verse 6. And so Samson trifles with her, really toys with her, like the whole puppet thing, like he was having fun. He said, well, if they bind me with seven bowstrings, that, that will hold me. Ha, ah, she says, the Philistines ambush him, and he breaks the bowstrings. So she pouts, and she pouts some more. And he says to her, well, if I'm bound with new ropes, that'll hold me. And again, in comes the ambush, the Philistines, and he snaps the ropes. And now she's so hurt, 
at all of his mocking and his lying. And he says, well, if you weave my seven locks of hair into the web of your loom and fasten it tight with a pin, then I can be, I can be bound. But again, uh, the ambush uh, fails, the loom is in pieces. And so day after day, Delilah continues to press him hard, harder, harder, until in verse 16 of chapter 16, the text says that Samson's soul was vexed to death. I cannot stand this anymore. So finally, the scripture says he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's, uh, from my mother's womb. And if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Well, notice what's happened. Samson has finally, for the first and only time, identified himself as a Nazarite. But he's identified himself as a Nazarite as part of renouncing his Nazarite vow. If he'd ever actually personally taken the vow at all, and some people have a lot of trouble with this idea that Samson's strength was in his hair. You cut off his hair, you know, you lose your strength. That sounds like such a myth, such a fairy tale, such a fable. And I understand that, but you're not reading. I don't think that's a right reading of the text. If you go to Numbers chapter 6, if a Nazarite wanted to end their vow, they would have their hair cut. And so for him to say, if my hair is cut, I will lose my strength, he may have been thinking actually in terms of the physical strands of his hair, but the reality was he knew, he had to know, he was renouncing his vow. And the Spirit of God and the strength that had been upon him then left him. That's what happened. So please don't think of this in terms of fairy tale. It's not. Well, let me show a picture I hope you can see this picture. This is a picture of the moment that Samson gives in and, uh, and tells Delilah it's all about his hair. And uh, I like this picture very much. It, uh, it was uh, painted in the late uh, 19th century by an artist, a Spanish artist known as Echena. And because he was part of the Orientalist movement of art, when he did biblical, this biblical scene, he set it in the Orient, which means it has an Egyptian setting. And of course, he was criticized for that because uh, Samson and Delilah's story didn't occur in Egypt, but the Orientalists used, used Oriental settings to depict scenes, including this biblical scene. Well, if you can just get past that, and I think you probably have already, you look at this, and this picture is actually quite full of meaning. I mean, here you see Delilah, sweetly looking at Samson, coaxing him. Come on, boy. Good boy. You can do it. Pat, pat, hat with those adoring eyes. And then you see Samson looking effeminate, looking effeminate, holding his beautiful locks of hair. Yeah. And you see the lion skin Perhaps at the bottom of the picture, you see the lion's head attached to the skin at the bottom of the picture. That's the lion 
um, that Samson had killed. Now, that's not actually what happened. We're not told it was there, but it's all for symbolism and meaning. And it's very, in that sense, it's very, uh, I think it's very significant. You see the lion's head down there, the lion's rug, and you see the lion's head with that soft, luxurious mane that surrounds the head just like Samson, who's now destroying himself. Delilah has Samson fall asleep on his knees, you know, his head's in her lap. He has someone come in. She has someone come in and shear that sleepy head. The text says that she wakes him up by taunting him, by tormenting him. And the Philistines pounce on him and they bind him. And verse 20 of chapter 16 says, this is what Samson says, this is what he assumes, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And so they blind him. And they enslave him. And the lords of the Philistines celebrate at the temple of Dagon in Gaza. And they celebrate, the lords announce, our God, Dagon, has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And so after drinking, it says when they're merry, after drinking for a few days, having one of those big bacchanalias, they decide to bring in Samson. He's been grinding wheat. They bring him into the temple. They tie him between two pillars of the temple of Dagon. And I want to say quickly, parenthetically, we now know archaeologically that was in fact the truth, that the Philistine temples had two columns in the center that held everything up. You knocked out one of those columns, the temple would come down. But Samson prays. He's up there between the two columns. He's being made sport of. And he prays. Listen to his prayer. He says, oh, Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And with divine strength, Samson literally brings down the house and all inside it perish, including Samson himself. Now, what are we to take from this story? You say, take a lot of lessons. There's so much here. What are we to take from this story? And I'm going to draw your attention to two things I'd like to invite you to think about. The first is, that we can easily be tempted to look back on the dark ages of the Old Testament, and the book of Judges is the dark ages. We may be tempted to look back on these dark ages, look back at the example of Samson, this period of history, and assume, rather glumly, we say, well, why in the world did God use Samson? And conclude that, well, you know, the issue was God didn't have much good material to work with back then, so... But the nativity story of Samson teaches us that wasn't the case at all. God wasn't just dealing with the worst of a bad lot. The nativity story says that God determined this man would be conceived. This man would be born. And what his destiny was to be, whether he would personally accept the calling or not, it was another matter. 
And it underscores for us that God's work is never a band-aid affair. God's work in the midst of our lives, in the midst of history, is never a piece of divine crisis management. It never, ever is. It's part of a plan that he has had in view from all eternity. God never has a plan B. Samson wasn't, you know, just the best available. God made Samson from scratch. And the words of Habakkuk 1.5, a later prophet, are always true in every age. This verse in Habakkuk was true back of Samson, although it was written for much later. It was true of Jesus in the New Testament and it's quoted in Acts, although at half the prophecy was given much earlier than that. But these words are always true. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And I want to say to you, this applies to your life. It applies to you and your life as well. And the, as well as the times that we're in. You know, God's... When you look at your life and what you've gone through, what you're facing the people you have to deal with, the challenges that are in you. Folks, God's thoughts and God's ways are so far above ours. And it is true for us, if we're honest, instead of grasping at explanations for why things happen, like why did Las Vegas happen, instead of grasping for explanations, we need to honestly be able to say, without as Christians, as part of our Christian calling, I honestly don't know what God is doing. What is wrong to do is to conclude that because I don't know what God is doing, God doesn't know what God is doing either. That is never true. He is completely unbounded by our time span, by our, our, our lifespan, by what we can see, by what we imagine might be ahead. And I tell you that through the course of our lives, our feelings of hope, our emotions of hope, they may ebb and flow. They do ebb and flow. But the hope that God gives is constant and sure. And no one who hopes in him will ever be disappointed, ever. God is never on his last leg just trying to get things, get through a hard patch. And that's what Andrew Brunson knows. He's in prison now for a year, effective yesterday. That's why he wrote, I haven't read it yet, but I just heard he wrote a beautiful uh, psalm or hymn of praise to God. We'll publish it as soon as we get it. That's what he knows in the midst of his circumstances. That's what you have to know in the midst of your circumstances. When you hope in God, you'll never be disappointed. No one in Samson's day could imagine that the next and final judge would be Samuel, a true Nazarite, a faithful Nazarite and prophet, that the royal line of David was about to surface by whom would come an end to the Philistines and a thousand years later, the birth of the Savior of the world to deliver us from sin? 
it really is humbling to know this God. It's humbling to know this God. It's humbling to know his ways. And that is possible through faith in Christ. That's how we come to know this God. Through faith in the Savior that he sent for us who died for our sins. And as you know, Jesus was not a disappointment in response to his birth story. He was absolute fulfillment. The second thing I want to say is remember that when you think about Samson, I would just ask you this. Not to think about Samson as a tragic figure, although he was in many ways. But I suggest we not think about Samson as a tragic figure, but that we think about Samson as a very foolish man. He grew up in a godly home with a God-filled story of his birth and the divine calling to live a holy life for the Lord. And yet he treated all of this with contempt and decided to live on his own terms, absolutely on his own terms. And the more he buried his awareness of God, the more he lost any ability to be aware of himself. And the truth is that apart from real faith in God, I mean genuine trust in the Lord, there is no end to the power of sin over our minds and our hearts. Leave out our actions for a minute. There's no end to the power of sin over how we think, our attitudes, and our hearts. And we are so unself-aware that that we do not understand how it is from that heart then that the many ruinous things happen in our lives. I'm not saying we're never victims, but you know what I'm saying. That when we turn our back on God, when we turn our back on God, we have really lost self-awareness as well as the awareness of him. Samson was blinded. Why? Because he was already blind. Samson was bound. Why? Because he was already bound. You turn your back on God and sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will hold on to you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you more than you're prepared to pay. It's just the truth. And that's why Proverbs teaches, above all else, guard your heart for it is a wellspring of life. And yet at the very end of Samson's foolish, foolish life, like the thief on the cross who led a foolish, foolish life, we hear him cry out, do we not? Oh Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God. And God heard his faith. And he answered him. And he took him. Folks, this this God is revealed in Scripture. This is the true God. And this is a God of grace and power who is fully worthy of our worship and our devotion every single day. We will never be able to figure him out, but we are always able to worship and love him 
for every good reason. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this portion of your word. And I know that this is a lot of text and a big story, a long story. But there's so much that's profound here for us. And that the first reading won't bring us to, or even a second reading, or a five-verse study won't bring us to. Lord, I thank you for the example of Samson and the story of Samson. And I know how it must have spoken to Israel. It is a cautionary tale, but there's more to it. It's about you. And it's about your purpose being accomplished no matter what. And it's about, it's about maintaining a steadfast hope in you because you are, you are doing what you have ordained to do. And maintain our hope like Boaz, like Ruth, like Naomi, who will surely be introduced to us in the book of Ruth as having lived in the days of the judges. Lord, please don't let us grow faint-hearted in any respect, but strengthen our faith in Christ, your Son, who is, who is our Savior. Amen.